Well, brothers, welcome back to Big Truths in Little Packages, where we will be exploring the four smallest books in the New Testament, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Philemon, or Philemon. And tonight, we're going to take our second time to go at 2 John. I taught last week, and I'm teaching again this week. And so I'll start with a little review to catch us all up and cover some things that I think I missed, and then we'll dive into the rest of the book. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to meet together around your word. We ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to apply this word to ourselves corporately and personally. In light of current events in our lives and in the world that we see, Lord, we believe that your word is inspired and is relevant for today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John is an old man now. He's the last survivor of the original 12 living. All of them had been killed, with the exception of Judas. He was the first one to go. He killed himself. And then the second one to go was John's brother, who was killed by beheading. He was not happy about that. His mother was not happy about that. And they arrested Peter. They're going to do away with him as well. And the church prayed night and day, and Peter got delivered. So there they are with this strange dilemma that the early church went through and that church goes through of riot and revival, weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. So they're rejoicing with Peter and his wife, and if he had kids, his children, and his mother-in-law, he knew he had a mother-in-law, Yes, he's been delivered. Meanwhile, they're having a funeral for James. It is interesting to me that John's mother approached Jesus, and some people believe they may have been blood kin. Uh, John may have been a cousin of Jesus, and so his mother could have been Mary's sister or some cousin of hers. She approached Jesus on her son's placement in his kingdom, said, uh, could one be on your left hand and one on your right? Well, if you were to line up, the 11, Judas being removed, line them up in context of their death, <laughs> left to right, James would be on the left, and John was on the right. I know that's not what she was asking about. That's a little useless Bible trivia there that I find interesting. He begins this letter. Keep in mind, he's writing a letter to somebody to encourage them, not knowing it's going to be included in the canonization not even sure that there's going to be a Bible. He did write a biography of Jesus, the Gospel of John named after himself, and he wrote the Revelation of Jesus. It's believed that he wrote the book of Revelation first, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And that book, as strange as it is, has a blessing. Blessed are those who read and does the things that are written in this book. So if you read the book of Revelation, read the book of Revelation and look for things to do. And do them, and you'll receive the blessing that the book has. Don't add to it, and don't take away from it. So that's the danger of reading other books that have to do with Revelation. They may tempt you to take away from it or add to it, and that's not good either. Here he is writing a postcard-sized letter. It could have fit on a sheet of papyrus in his own hand. Notice verse 12. He says, having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so, with paper and ink. I hope to come to you and speak to you face to face so that our joy may be full. 
There's no substitute for face-to-face -face conversation. The written word is powerful, and it's a great way to encourage someone. But if you ever have to get into correcting someone, you run the danger of offending people with a written word, whereas a face-to-face sit-down meeting, you can say some pretty strong stuff, and they can see your heart. They can hear your tone. I think it's great danger to get into a disagreement by texting or emailing. Things can go south really quick because you don't understand one another's tone. And so John has some strong things to say to them, but he hopes to come and do it face-to-face. -face. Now, he's an old man. He could be pushing 80. Real easy. It's believed this was 60, written around 60 years after the ascension. So he very well, being a young man when Christ died, very well would be close to 80 years old. Writing with pen and ink isn't easy for people that get old, I'm told. The older I get, the more annoying it is. And plus, in that day, you didn't have ballpoint pens, right? So you got to sharpen the quill and not spill the ink and, you know, get a piece of paper. Papyrus is, you know, made up of various components, and, you know, you can't just find them on every street corner. Papyrus, get your papyrus here. I'm sure they, they had it available. Nevertheless, he wrote this letter, and that's what we're going to look at it again and hopefully this time complete the whole thing. Yes, sir? He didn't go to Staples. No, he didn't go to Staples. <laughs> you ever think of the word Staples? It's actually a play on words. Anyway, Second John, it's named after him, and it's his second letter, First John, we've already looked at a few weeks ago. He introduces himself, the elder to the elect lady and her children. It literally could be translated the elder elect lady and her children, or the elder chosen lady. Uh, the word there for elder is presbyteros, and as you can read in the commentary that I brought from John MacArthur, he's greatly resistant to that. No, the elder is John because he is old. I, I don't know that we have to part ways on whether or not that is the correct translation or not, but let's take it for what it is. He's writing a chosen woman whom he calls Curia. Now, there's more than one Greek word for woman. There's one word that means woman as well as wife. This is a woman that's a leader-type woman, Curia, which is a feminine form of the word kurios, which means lord or master, someone in authority. So a Curia is a woman in authority at her own house, and she's chosen. And so he's writing this letter to this person. He doesn't give her name. If the letter was intercepted, then her identity, being under persecution, could have been compromised, right? Paul didn't seem to worry about naming people. This may have been written after Paul where things were getting worse. He writes this woman and sends it by the hand of someone. It's kind of like someone sending you an email or a text. They don't necessarily say, Dear Bob. Say it backwards. Bob Reed. A little humor there, very little. <laughs> <laughs> to those that are on the phone, I just got the response. <laughs> Tear in the headlights. <laughs> the elder to the elect lady and her children. So it's believed by some that this is a woman who had a Christian family, and he's writing to encourage them, as well as it could be a spiritual mother who has a home group or a house church in her house, and he has ministered there. He obviously has a relationship with them and he's writing to encourage them. 
He said, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. In other words, everybody loves you all. Everybody that knows the truth, that knows you, loves you, and I love you in truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Notice right here in the first fragment of a sentence, verse 1 and 2, he's got the word truth once, twice, and three times. I love in the truth not only I, but those who have known the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. What is this truth? It's the truth of Jesus Christ. He began his only gospel talking about Jesus. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1, verse 14. We beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So truth is the character of Jesus. He is the epitome of truth. He is the truth made flesh. He is the truth of prophecy being fulfilled. And obviously he speaks the truth. He said in John chapter 8, if you continue in my words, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So Christ is the truth, and his words are the truth, and if we abide in his words, we continue in them, we meditate on them, we read everything Jesus had to say, it brings freedom to our lives. We often think of his life as being one of setting captives free and of healing the sick and performing miracles, but if you thought about what his words did, his words would heal because he spoke with authority, but his words also, when applied, would heal relationships. Agree with your adversary quickly. Do unto others you would have them do unto you. Love your enemies. Do good to those that do bad to you. His words, when believed and applied and walked in, bring healing to your relationships. So, that's the outflow of the gospel. He's introduced his subject, the woman that he's writing to and her children. And then here comes the blessing. Verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Now, why would he emphasize this? Because this truth is under attack. I mean, it's been close to 60 years since the resurrection, and people are beginning to question things and trying to readjust history. I mean, how long has it been since the Holocaust? Has it been about 60 years? Well, 65 years maybe? People in our day are trying to adjust history. Oh, there wasn't 6 million Jews killed. All this, all that. Why are they building Holocaust museums all over the world? So we never forget. Because people have a way of forgetting, letting things slip. Chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews reminds us not to forget stuff not to let things that are important slip when it comes to Jesus Christ. He is who he said he was. And so he gives us blessing, grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was the Lord Jesus Christ? The Son of the Father in truth and love. I have a dear friend, a Shona friend, African friend from Zimbabwe. I made friends with this guy the day I met a vet. They were already friends. I met them both on the same day at the same place. And I've kept in touch with him off and on over the years. He went on and became a doctor in epidemiology and all that. Well, he has since decided to convert to Orthodox Judaism. And he now believes that Jesus was a Nephilim. Remember before the flood? 
There's a story of the angels meeting with humans and creating these giants in the earth. All right, the flood would have done away with that race. No longer is Jesus the son of the Father. If he is real, he's the son of some angel. He's a Nephilim. Those are supposed to be killed. How can you do that? How can you switch to that belief? By letting important things slip. So that's why we need these little letters. They're there to emphasize not a whole lot, but what they emphasize is very important that we not let it slip. Jesus is the Christ, and he's the Son of the Father in truth and love. We don't want to get mean about this. We want to be loving. I'm not cutting the guy off. Obviously, he's not going to sway me in any way, but I'm doing some friend suggestions with some people that aren't friends with him that I know will straighten him out. So, it is in our day, people are going astray from belief in the gospel. There was a pastor right here in the city that began to doubt the the claims of Christ, began to doubt the authority of the scripture, began to doubt the principles of evangelicalism, began saying more and more universalistic things. And when he got confronted by his church for things that were going on in his personal life as well as his beliefs, he refused to repent and got the axe without a chance to repent. Sad deal. Sheep scattered all over the city. A guy went astray. It's important to hold on to these things that are important. And I know I'm getting ahead of myself because I know where John is going, and he's already opening up this letter by going there, and he's emphasizing these things along the way. The Father and Jesus, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly, verse 4, that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. He found some people from this little congregation, this house church, maybe as part of a huge congregation, but, and maybe it was this woman's kids. Maybe she had a whole lot of kids. He was delighted that they were still walking in truth. Verse 5, And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Sectarianism was coming into the church. There's always a difference of opinions, and there's an effort to hold to the truth when the church is assaulted with error, People who believe in defending themselves against the error become really staunch in all their beliefs. And everything we believe isn't a cause for not fellowshipping with people, not loving people. You know, like the elder, is that referring to John or is that referring to the lady? That's not a doctrinal issue where we would stop loving each other. It's very important in our stance for truth that we never compromise a call to love each other. It seems like The most loving churches are the ones that are the least concerned about truth, and the most truth-inspired churches, you know, bastions for the gospel, seem to be the most unloving. There's balance in the two. Why can't we have both? I plead with you, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Go with me to Matthew 28, the last chapter of Matthew. Walking in Christ's commandments 
He's talking about Jesus. He's not talking about Moses. This is one of the Great Commission verses. Mark 16 has a form of Great Commission, Luke 24 and John 20. And Acts 1 does. So this is the first of the five in sequence as they're given in the Bible. He says in verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, in heaven and on earth. So he has all authority in heaven and all authority on earth. Go therefore, or because I have all this authority, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things. Can we say all? All things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So everything Jesus commanded is of utmost importance. John was there, and he's emphasizing that. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. Christ's commandments has everything to do with loving God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving one another as he loved us and loving our neighbors as ourselves. From the very beginning, this is the basis of our truth. Doing what Jesus said do. So he's pleading with her. Verse 5, Now I plead with you, lady, not as though I'm saying some new thing. I plead with you. And then he gives a reason for his pleading. Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Jesus himself predicted that there would be many Christs, many messiahs, he said, don't believe them. They say, lo, here is Christ, or there is Christ. You know, they say, oh, we discovered the bones of Jesus next to the tomb of Mary Magdalene, who was his wife. That's a whole nother Christ. Don't be shocked. Jesus said there would be multiple Christ. What is Satan doing? He's against Jesus. And if he can't discredit him, he will seek to dilute him, to confuse the issue, to distract his commands with more of him. So which Jesus is it? The word anti can mean anti, but it also can mean in place of or a replacement. Jesus. I don't know about you. I don't want any antichrist in my life. In fact I want to, I want to be an anti antichrist. Some people are so obsessed with the Antichrist, capital A, they know more about him than the Christ. That in itself can be an antichrist. That's a whole other subject, moving right along. Many deceivers have gone on in the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. They'll say he never came, or there never was Jesus, or we have no proof that he was there, or yes, he came, but he really wasn't human. Or he was a Nephilim. Nephilim? How do you say that? Nephilim. He was a Nephilim. He was a Nephilim. He was... He was uh, not really a human. He was an angel man. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Now, it's been around 60 years. He has seen the church explode and grow 
and been used internationally to do great things for God and hear reports of what God's doing and probably read some of Paul's letters and read what Luke had to say. But now he's 60 years later, he's seeing some other things that are concerning him. The church doesn't have the New Testament yet. They have the law, they have the Old Testament, and they have Judaizers that are seeking to take advantage of the situation by putting the law of Moses on people, you know, making men get circumcised and women have kosher kitchens, and all that was sorted out in Acts 15, but they all didn't have a copy of Acts 15. The Old Testament had been around for centuries, right? The Torah, for sure. Tough. It was, and in, in the early days, their original meeting places, because the gospel was sent to the Jew first, their original meeting places besides houses and public halls was synagogues. So there's the Torah, and there's verses in the Torah that point to Jesus, but baby Christians don't know one verse from the other. They're not able to rightly divide the word. And so Paul wrote the book of Galatians, but they all didn't have a copy of the book of Galatians. So to me, they kind of had an excuse. What's a shock to me in my day is the people I know, even friends of mine, that are being sucked into Old Testament living. Like you have to keep the feast. You have to keep the Sabbath. Wasn't there a building burned down recently? Somebody was keeping the Sabbath and couldn't turn their hot plate off, and they burned down a bunch of people's... That was never the will of God. Somebody's providing electricity to your home. You're being a hypocrite about it. It's like Jesus isn't enough. He is enough. He is sufficient. He's what we need. We need to grow in grace and grow in knowledge of him and become experts in Jesusology, if there is such a thing, Christology there is, and not so much... Old Testament stuff. What is it? It's the enemy trying to distract us. Hebrews 6 says, if you go back under the law, there's no more salvation for you. There's nothing back there. That's our foundation. Christ fulfilled it. It's important to have knowledge of that, to appreciate what Jesus did, but then to go back into it like it's not enough and to be obsessed with the red heifer and all this other stuff. This is a great concern to me. Back to the text. Go ahead. Uh, there's 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 all kinds of ways to get confused in this. I mean, I I, I used to like to to uh, find on TV different shows that would talk about the Bible, but so many of them today. I think one of them is called Mysteries of the Bible or something like that. But it's it's always this way out stuff. Uh, they'll talk about uh, Jesus' wife and and how he went to India and. All of this stuff that's that they, they just ignore the scriptures, yeah, and they get off into the, all these tangents, and and I'm sure Christians can get sucked into those some of those television shows, uh, yeah. you know, they're persuasive in yeah. some ways. So there's there's a lot of voices out there. You got to be very careful which voice you listen to. Someone in my family believes they found the Ark of the Covenant and they know where it is, and the Angels that look over the mercy seat are actually birds. <laughs> and their beaks are facing the mercy seat. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's just a distraction. Meanwhile, Jesus is, hello, here I am. And one of those shows that Joe was talking about, and then the one one time, and I said that they always like to use this term, studies suggest. <laughs> yes, oh yes. <laughs> 
maybe, perhaps, if possible. Right, all of these ambiguous things, and then, and then they'll say that recent, recent studies are going to could very well shake the Christian world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm listening to this for about 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Yeah. Yes. That's good. That's good. One of the yes, things sir. That I, I discovered, my wife and I, when we were first dating and married, we got involved with uh, a couple of messianic mm-hmm. groups. Views for Jesus was one in California we did some work with. And, but we got involved in, in very, not so much involved, in, we would go to various messianic congregations. One of the things I've discovered, some are very good, and their interest is in leading Jews to find Jesus. But there are other messianic congregations who are more interested in taking Christians and making them Jews. Yes. And more interested in getting back what you were talking about, back into the, you have to do the feast, you have to do the, you know, all the ritualistic things that are involved in at the feast and all of that, and Sabbath, you know, only on Saturday. And if you don't, you're not really a believer. You're not following Jesus. You're part of the Antichrist. Yeah. So they can be, some can be very good, but some can be, take you right back where Paul was talking about, oh, you foolish Galatians, you no. started out under the law, started out under grace, are you going to go back into the law? Yeah. I, I believe the Messianic movement in its purest form is a movement of God. Yes. That faces resistance from the enemy. I mean, they lose their jobs and oh, stuff yeah. in Israel. But what the enemy can't completely stop, he'll send in forces to bring division and to push things too far. So you got both things, the distraction from the pure and persecution from the unbelieving synagogues. I mean, I saw a video of a guy out on the streets of Tel Aviv seeking to minister, and one of these... Big Jewish guys with the ringlets, a Hasidic guy walked up and did this. What? <laughs> Just slapped the daylights out of him and walked on. The guys got back up and continued to share, and he walked back again and hit him again. What? Persecution. So you got that on one side, and you got the people pushing things too far on the other side, the wannabe Jews happening. I think they even did, did with this. There were those, in Revelation talks about people calling themselves Jews and they're not and all that stuff. It's all a distraction. All right, verse 7 again. Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. So what did he work for? He worked to establish local churches. He worked to establish disciples. He worked to strengthen believers. So he's not wanting his little ones to lose traction. Whoever, verse 9, transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine or teaching of Christ does not have God. And he's really strong. He who abides in the doctrine or the teaching of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Now, you can look at that from two ways. One, if you teach the truth, you're going to have the blessing of the Father and the Son. Or the other way you can look at it is if you're teaching truth, your truth is going to acknowledge the reality of the Father 
and the reality of the sun. And I grew up in a movement that so distorted things that they said Jesus was the Father. And we know he was God manifested in the flesh, and we know he said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but there's still a Father in heaven. And so they had to skip around 1 Corinthians 15 and try to explain away the prayer in John 17, rather than just embracing what the Word says. They even had to dance around a little bit when they would explain John 3.16, Jesus' own words. That's not the doctrine of Christ. The gospel, you acknowledge the Father and the Son. That is the gospel. Acted out with Abraham and Isaac on the mountain when he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. That is a picture of the Father offering his Son, and that is Jesus. That is the truth. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine or bring this teaching, don't let the word doctrine throw you teaching. Do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So he's not recommending that you're hospitable to people that go door to door to attempt to sell you their version of Jesus. You have the Jehovah Witnesses that believe Jesus was an angel. Michael the Archangel was Jesus. And they also believe Jesus did not rise from the dead. He just got a new body and his old one had to disintegrate. God didn't transform it. Well, that's not resurrection. You've got the Mormons saying that the Father is a man that earned godhood. And there's actually a whole other God they don't know anything about. and He lives on the planet Kolob, where we came from. He's just saying, don't be hospitable to him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. If you spend time with him, speak the truth. Don't just, oh, how sweet of you. No, you got to share some truth. Yvette led a couple, uh, now Mormons send girls door to door, in groups of three generally. And... Uh, so she allowed three girls to come in, and she shared her testimony with them. Well, they don't know what to do with somebody's testimony. And she said, can I pray? And the Lord gave her a word from one of them said, you don't want to do this. You're just going through the motion because somebody else wants you to do this. And it rattled the gal. They came back a couple weeks later. That girl wasn't with them anymore. Verse 12, having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your chosen or elect sister greet you. Amen. This could be a sister or a spiritual sister who has another house church somewhere that they know about. Who knows? That's not the point. The point is there's truth in this. And the truth is that we are to hold to the truth in love with wisdom. Hold to the truth in love with wisdom. If we hold to the truth, we will have both the Father and the Son. We will have Jesus coming in the flesh in our preaching, the real Jesus. Now, I wrote a poem recently called We Need the Real Jesus. And my reason for doing so was I began to sense there's a lot of different Jesuses out there. In fact, you do an image search on Jesus, you get some pretty far-out things, kind of humorous stuff that anything but Jesus. It got put in the paper when I submitted it for 
publication I had the month of March to submit devotionals on Wednesdays. And two weeks later, a lady called the church last week, crying, saying, I need this real Jesus. So I got to pray with her to receive the real Jesus and encourage her to go to church, start reading the book of John. She cried some more and said, I've been reading the book of John. So anyway, so that was a that was a good day. In preparing for this lesson, I found this online, written by Kevin D. Young, entitled, Who Do You Say That I Am? So the greatness of God is most clearly displayed in his Son, and the glory of the gospel is only made evident in his Son. That's why Jesus' question to his disciples in Matthew 16 is so important. Who do you say that I am? The question is doubly crucial in our day because no one is as popular in the U.S. as Jesus. But not every Jesus is the real Jesus. There's a Republican Jesus who's against tax increases and activist judges. He's for family values and owning firearms. There's a Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart and is about, he's, he's fired up about our reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's Therapist Jesus, who helps us coast with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are, and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, <laughs> drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's Open-Minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you are, and especially not those intolerant folks. There's Touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster, jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's Martyr Jesus. There's Martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so we could feel sorry for him and feel good about ourselves. There's Gentle Jesus, who was meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walks around barefooted, wearing a sash, looking very German. There's Hippie Jesus. There's Hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, he imagines a world without heaven or religion and helps us remember that all we need is love. <laughs> His favorite band is the Beatles. There's Yuppie Jesus, who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. There's Rambo Jesus, who wins fights, shoots guns, and hates gays. There's Spiritual Jesus, who hates religion, churches, and doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature finding their God within while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's useless platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and inspiring people to believe in themselves. There's revolutionary Jesus, who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and blame things on the system. There's guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you to find your center. There's Boyfriend Jesus, who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his love in our secret place. There's Good Example Jesus, who shows us how to help people change the planet and become a better you and have your best life now. And then there's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they had been waiting for, the Son of David, Abraham's chosen seed, the one who came to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic Law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, 
The one who healed the sick gave sight to the blind, brought freedom to the prisoners, and proclaimed good news to the poor. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator come to earth, the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed their curse. This Jesus is the seed that God spoke of to the serpent. The Christ promised to Abraham, prophesied through Balaam, guaranteed to Moses. The Christ promised to David when he was king and revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant, predicted through the prophets and prepared for through the ministry of John the Baptist. This Jesus Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or projection of our own desires, which is but idolatry. He is our Lord and God. He is the Father's Son Savior of the world and substitute for our sins, more loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. This is why it's important for us to remember that Jesus is the Son of the Father, the God of the Old Testament. Awesome. And King James says, terrible <laughs> and terrifying. To the wicked, but full of love that should not be taken for granted. Isn't that good? Amen. Good Jesus. Just to comment that you know, we're supposed to witness to everyone, but the take on this is if somebody is coming at you like that, is like trying to give testimony to them, just Get out of here. You're not, you can't stay here. You're not welcome here. You know, it's yeah. not a brotherly love kind of thing. This lady has children. So of all ages probably, so some baby Christians. And so you have baby Christians in your home. You don't want to be debating Jehovah's Witnesses in front of them. It'll just confuse them. But if you're by yourself or with another person, or it leads you, but certainly don't bless them. You know, share the truth in love. It's my take on it. Yeah, one, one thing there's that popped in my mind is thinking like, okay, if it's somebody who has a, a home church, and the commandment was as often as you get together, take the communion, right? Um, break bread together. What's an interesting study uh, did recently is is the uh, the relationship of meals in the Bible and covenants. As we go back through time, there's, I mean, there's communion. Uh, when Peter's restored, they had breakfast on the beach. <laughs> I would just go right back through time for everything. I was like, hey, don't bring them in and get them tied in, because then we start bringing in some other doctrine before you know it. But uh, I don't know what I had about that. Uh, it's true. Um, you guys remember the couple that used to stand on the side of the road and hold up these strange-sounding yeah. spiritual sounds, spiritual signs, you know? Dream Huh? They yeah, they showed. Uh, they showed up at one of our home groups, and our home group leader gave him the floor. And you talk about some whacked out stuff. Um, but thank goodness there wasn't any baby Christians other there than a brother that got so upset he went home <laughs> that they they would show them hospitality. But they're just, you know, I don't know that they were deceivers as much as they were just deceived into their own stuff. But yeah. That's why it's so important that we as, you know, we as believers get into the Word for ourselves 
come to every teaching, good teaching, because part of the great success that, and they do have great success that Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons have when they come is that most Christians can't defend what we believe. Mm. When you, I, I, I know that, for example, uh, probably heard of Dr. Walter Martin. Yeah. He, he came to seminary I was at, and he pretended he was a Jehovah Witness. Uh, we got all seminary students in there going into the ministry, and by the time we were 15 minutes in it, half the class was cussing him. And swearing because they couldn't defend. They couldn't defend. Okay. Sometimes they couldn't defend the deity of Christ. They couldn't defend the Trinity. They couldn't defend the Holy Spirit being a person. And if we can't, if we don't know in Scripture where to find that, then sometimes we're, you know, that's why they can easily break us down, break new believers and and. Believers who have been around a while but really don't know the word themselves. Yeah. Movements like that, and I was raised in one of them, have a rabbit trail through the scriptures that they're going to get you on and get you thinking with them and arrive at the conclusion they want you to. When you get them off the trail, they'll say, yes, but what about? And they won't resolve that. You bring up 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus gives all authority to the Father in the end, where God may be all in all, they'll say, yes, but what about, and they move on. You take them to John 17, there's Jesus praying to the Father. Yes, but, you take the Genesis 1, God says, let us make man. Yes, but what about, you get them off their rabbit trails. Well, a new Christian doesn't understand this, that you can go on rabbit trails through the scriptures and avoid conflicting things to push your, your private revelation anyway. And I think I, I think no matter what age, how long you've been a Christian, there are times when you really need the wisdom of other believers that you trust. Exactly. That you don't go out there fighting every battle that comes yes. your way. Because, because uh, no matter who you are, you can kind of uh, uh, you can get yourself in trouble. And I think we're we're you need the wisdom. Of other believers to to kind of balance and kind of get your head on straight on these things because it is it is tough when somebody comes into a meeting like you mentioned and wants to take over yeah uh, and and there's a time where where you really do need to go to the council of other believers and, and, and deal with it yeah.